Okay, Nigel. Um, what do you know about alchemy? Hmm. It's when a wizard. <laughs> yeah. Right? Sure, yeah. There's a wizard involved, and a wizard attempts to make gold. Right. Yeah. Right. And the alchemist, um, you know, part of that also trying to harness the four elements right to create something um new and more amazing so that would be from you know if you're know about uh if you ever watched captain planet you know i haven't back in the day i'm a millennial so i used to watch that but um earth fire wind water not heart I don't, but maybe that factors in, but in alchemy, I don't think that they would use that. But the, you know, the goal is to harness these four, what, you know, elements that in, you know, this pre-science way of thinking about the world, everything was made out of to create something more amazing, like gold or like a whatever. Right. Right. Um, so Nigel, do you think of yourself as an alchemist? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, I make stir fry. I make some pretty <laughs> wicked stir fry. That's out of like making something good from other things. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of being a wizard, I would not say mm. that you're an alchemist. But I think that our topic today has a lot to do with this um, kind of archaic, non scientific way about thinking about the world. Right. Um, because if you think about ceramics, what is it but harnessing these uh, forces of nature like earth and water and then using fire to create something that's more amazing? Yeah. Oh, so you're talking about ceramics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's pretty It's pretty amazing when you think about all the things, the factors that go into it, that you're digging something out of the earth, right? Um, you have to go through all these stages to get it usable. Um, and then you can form a, a form something out of it and then you put it in a fire and it fires, right? Becoming something, uh, different, right? Yeah. It's being elevated to like a whole new level. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Ceramics, whether that is thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago or ceramic artists today. Um, and kind of looking at that from a material culture perspective. Cool. So episode three, ceramics. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome to the Materialists episode, Trace, 
That would be Tres. That would be the third episode. Third episode. The Materialist Podcast, talking about material culture, how objects transform culture, and how culture transform objects from an archaeological leaning. Not all the time. Sometimes. Yeah. Leaning. Yeah. Leaning. Yeah. And so this is our third episode. And um, uh, we're going to be talking about ceramics today. We are actually going to be having two separate guests on the podcast today. So that's very exciting. And we will be uh, introducing them here shortly. So it's going to make the podcast a little bit longer, but that's no big deal. Right, listeners? (laughs) Yeah, we should introduce ourselves again. Oh, yeah. You go. Okay, my name is <laughs> my name is Becky Sullivan. I'm a public archaeology coordinator at the West Central Regional Center of the Florida Public Archaeology Network, also known as FPAN. And my name is Nigel Rudolph, and I am the public archaeology coordinator for the central region of FPAN um, in beautiful Crystal River. Um, but today we are in. Our podcasting studio, one of our podcasting yeah. studios slash <laughs> uh, FPAN office, Gainesville slash sewing room slash apparently toddler toy room <laughs> as well. So we're going to be podcasting from beautiful, historic Gainesville today. Yeah. It's um, nice. Talking about ceramics. And there's actually some ceramics in the room. Yeah. I um, wonder why. I wonder why. Yeah. Um, alert. <laughs> yeah, so um, I wanted to read a quote first from a book, <laughs> a book from an archaeologist here in Florida, Florida archaeologist by the name of Dr. Neil Wallace. He's a um, curator of archaeology at the Florida Museum of Natural History, but he w- wrote a book called The Swift Creek Gift, Vessel Exchange on the Atlantic Coast. And I consulted this book because I was looking for... Um, some information on interpretations of objects um, and how over time uh, different interpretations of the same object can come into play. Like we look at prehistoric vessels and that's what this book is about and develop our own interpretation of this vessel, uh, whether it's from a functional perspective, like what was this pot used for or a ceremonial perspective. And so he had a really interesting, uh, well, there's a really interesting quote that kind of touches on that. And I'm going to read it. It was mouse, mouse, is it mouse, mouse, Marcel mouse from his book, the gift 1925. It was mouse who first demonstrated that the exchange value of objects is essentially contextual often deriving from histories of association that imbue objects with cultural significance. Ultimately, even the material of daily practices, such as pottery associated with food preparation and eating, can be seen as linked to particular people, places, or ideas, and thus can provide the substance through which social relationships are constructed. And personhood is enacted in salient social context. Basically, what he's saying is that it's all in the eyes of the beholder, Mm -hmm. right? And depending on the context in which these pots were found or used, um, the interpretation of that object by the individual using that object will be can sometimes be vastly different. And so um, as archaeologists, when we kind of put things in these really neat kind of parameters, we may, we may be missing the point. I think 
we absolutely are. I mean, you know, what that shows too is that not only are those meanings and values that are attached to these pots in the past, they were contingent in the past. Right. But then they're also, you know, contingent right now too. Like the way that we view these objects is absolutely not the same. Well, don't you think that goes back to our first episode? I mean, to your object um, that you had for the first episode was this metal bowl that was passed down in your wife's, you know, family. Yeah. Um, And it has, you know, all these like wonderful memories and associations and meanings for you that make it so much more valuable over just being this, you know, kind of normal, everyday metal bowl. Mm -hmm. Yes, just the bowl. (laughs) Pardon my friend. (laughs) Um, Let's go into our um, our challenge of bringing an object. Should we jump into that? Sure, we can do that. Okay. Do you want to go first? Okay. I don't know. I might break it. I'm having a bad day. With me and ceramics aren't having a good day yeah. today. While Becky is unpacking um, her object, I would like her to tell us. Oh my god! To relive so a moment in time that happened just this morning with a ceramic oh. object that she was on bringing with her. Oh god! It was tell hor- the story, Becky. Uh, okay. This morning, I had to get up really early so I could drive to Gainesville. felt really tired. I was drinking my coffee out of a mug that Nigel made, and it was really awesome. And so I'm walking out the door, and the mug, like, gets hit on the door, and it, like, breaks. That was really sad. I I did literally almost cry. I was like, oh, my God, why? This day can't get any worse. Like, I hate this day already. (laughs) Well, this podcast is like therapy, and we're working <laughs> through our material culture issues. I know. I feel very attached to um, to objects. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's one thing that archaeologists contend with all the time is, I don't know, 99.9% of the ceramics that we find as archaeologists in the field um, are broken, right? Yeah. And that's because uh, pottery doesn't bounce. Yeah. <laughs> So does that mean that like every time we find a pot shirt that we're finding the result of someone having like a bad day? Every like, time. Shoot. Like yeah. I broke it. That yeah. was my favorite one. <laughs> Dang it. Every time. <laughs> every single time. <laughs> oh, man. So I should say that shirt, um, that could be our uh, vocab word for the day. Yeah. A shirt, S-H-E-R-D, is the archaeology word for a broken piece of pottery. So if you call it a pottery shard, then um, we as archaeologists know that you are not an archaeologist because yeah. we call it shir- a shard. Right. A shard is a piece of glass. Yeah. A shard is a piece of pottery. It's a common mistake. Don't feel bad. Those listeners that have made that error. Yeah. Before. I mean, it's like a stupid jargon yeah, word. So don't definitely yeah. don't feel bad about right. it. <laughs> but tell us about uh, what you brought to the table. Okay, Nigel. Um, well, I brought this beautiful teapot here today to share as my object. Does it look familiar to you? It does. <laughs> it's very familiar. So the story behind this teapot is um, every month, well, not every month, but I go to this, um, um, it's like a, a monthly antique 
store and they also have like art and other stuff for sale there in St. Petersburg. And so I went to this um, big pop-up shop one month walking through and this teapot catches my eye. I'm like, that looks somewhat familiar. I walk over and turn it over and I'm like, oh my God, did Nigel make this? (laughs) And so I actually bought um, one of Nigel's pieces at this at this shop. So I'm pretty proud yeah. of it. And I guess, how did it get there? I don't know. that's not where I left it. <laughs> but, you know, I found it. So, yeah. like, at least I use it all the time. I think a really interesting question from my perspective is uh, if you're willing to share with the probably thousands of people listening to this <laughs> podcast, at least, at least 1,000 people, how much did you pay for it? I think it was like twenty five dollars. Twenty five bucks. Yeah, I should say it's a really beautiful um, stoneware teapot. Um, really gorgeous. The lid is still there intact. It's not broken in any way. Um, it's really nice. I'll put a picture on the um, on yeah. the Instagram or something so yeah. you all can see it if you want to. Yeah, there'll be a picture on the show notes and on the Instagram. We do have an Instagram. Check it out. Yeah. It's called the Materialists Podcast. Podcast. That's yeah. us. Yeah. So that's a coffee pot that I made. And I, wait, should I talk about it? Yeah, talk about it. That's oh, why okay. I brought it. Oh, okay. Um, so I was going through a phase when I when I made this piece, and this this piece probably very old. Um, I don't know, ten years plus. Coffee is uh, my lifeblood. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have to have coffee, and so I made coffee pots. Um, and so we were in, uh, my wife and I were in a gallery in St. Petersburg We for several years. Um, and then we left the gallery um, when we moved up here to Gainesville and for other issues. And so we had thought we had collected all of our work from this gallery space, but we hadn't, I guess. And so my guess is that the gallery owner turned this coffee pot and other things you have found my wife's stuff. At I the have. Same sale. Yeah. yeah, that I was really proud of myself. Yeah, that's, for those are really those. nice pieces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that kind of t- touches again on this concept of value. Is like I would have sold this piece probably for I don't know one hundred and twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. one hundred and twenty five bucks probably. I determined a value after I made it based on the time I put into making it, the the um, the time it took to fire it, the time it took to do the carving on it, um, all the facets of it, the 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 cost of the the material itself, and so that's how I determined its monetary value. And so when Becky found it, it cost twenty five bucks, and so dramatically decreased the monetary value. But I think, and and in some ways, it kind of upped the conceptual value. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I mean, I would have paid way more for it. And I've bought, you know, others of your work in Cheyenne's work, You would have been foolish. (laughs) Because I think you both, I mean, your work is, like, really wonderful. But to me, walking into that store and seeing it and looking at it and saying, is this an is this like a Nigel piece, you know, to me, I was like, Oh my God, I have to buy that. I have to like save it because I'm not like, I guess, yeah, save it because Mm -hmm. I know who made it. Mm -hmm. Right. I know the story behind it. And so I need to like 
have this thing Mm -hmm. because this someone else if they bought it they wouldn't appreciate it in the same way right so i felt that like connection to that object immediately um because i knew the maker behind it um we go to this conference every year and uh, in sika and um it's a huge conference um, and so we go there with the idea of we're going to bring home one piece. We can't afford <laughs> to bring home anything that anything other than that. We have to be very particular <laughs> what what we're purchasing. Um, that's usually what does it is that connection to the individual that yeah. that we see, and that's that the maker is now in, in, in imbuing themselves into this piece, right? And so that's upping in my perspective the value of it. Right. And I think that's the thing that's so amazing about, you know, handmade ceramics is that it's not just any other mug. You can look at it and the style and the craftsmanship, you can look at it and say, oh, this is by this person, you know, over just, you know, by from a factory or that kind of a thing. And so every part of it, you see that connection to the maker, um, to the person who conceptualized and then created that object, which is, you know, really wonderful to have around you yeah. and, you know, at, at use in your everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. And our house is absolutely filled. Maybe one day in the future, way into the future, we can take a tour of um, the insane. That would be kind of fun for both of our houses because your house yeah. is also overflowing with, <laughs> so much, yeah. with the material <laughs> culture. The material culture. And, <laughs> And we could take a tour of all the stuff that we have. That would be kind of fun. Maybe yeah. it would be like a video. Yeah, we could do a video. Yeah, like a video tour. Podcast. A vodcast? A vodcast. Maybe a vodcast. <laughs> call it a vodcast. Yeah, a <laughs> I think the kids call it vlogging. Oh, vlogging. Oh, God. That's so old. These days. These days. But, um, okay, so something that I've always found really interesting, um, just getting to know you and Cheyenne, is... What you do with pots that, like, you don't sell or you don't want anymore. Yeah. Like, what – tell us what what you do. So that's a really – that's really hard. Um, And so we've tried all kinds of things. Um, Not really. We've tried two things. Um, Smashing them and throwing them away. Giving them to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we tried one time, we tried to, in order in order to, to recoup a little bit of the money that we put into producing these things, um, They uh, we tried to get people to pay us to smash them. <laughs> <laughs> we did, seriously, we had like a smashing party. And guess how many people took us up on that? Uh, I don't know how many. No. no <laughs> zero. Zero people. Um Zero people gave us money to smash our work. (laughs) They wanted to take it home, which was fine. But there's some things as an artist, as a maker, um, that I don't think should be in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Either there's flaws or they're old or they've been in the world for too long, like their lifespan is gone. Um, And so uh, I think the best place for them to go is into the landfill, right, into the garbage um, and so I, literally when I do smash them, I, I, it kind of harkens me back to um, like those prehistoric uh, ceramic artists. Um, and were they in a similar mindset? Not that they were attempting to make um, um, make money from these things and they didn't, but did 
did they have the perspective that something has been in the world too long as it is now and that it needs to go into right this object has you know finished its life, yeah, cycle, its life cycle and right. now it needs to to move on to a different yeah. uh, form um, so for maybe maybe two or three of the thousand people that are listening to this podcast, um, if you are interested in smashing some pottery, <laughs> um, <laughs> just give me a shout. I have plenty for you to, to smizzash. Smizzash. Yeah, so um, people have been living at least in Florida, we know for 14,500 years, right? So yeah. it's like really deep Pre-Clovis. history. Yeah, yeah, pre-Clovis, pre-Clovis for life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, you know, people have been living in Florida for a really, really long time. But those early sites, people were not making pottery. So we have these thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of years when people were not using pottery at all. In fact, it wasn't until around like, 4,500 years ago when archaeologists like Dr. Ken Sassaman of the University of Florida, um, he's done a lot of research in this area and on these early origins of pottery and pottery making. So around 4,500 years ago, along the what is now like the South Georgia coast, we see this first kind of creation of, of pottery in the Southeast. Mm. So that's almost, you know, like... 10,000 plus years of people living throughout the Southeast and not having pottery for cooking and doing all those things that they need. And so in Florida, you know, around 4,000 years ago is when we really see pottery come in. And then it's not the sort of, obviously it's not the sort of pottery that we see in, even in later time periods, it's this um, special kind that archaeologists call fiber-tempered. Fiber-tempered. Yeah. So, I mean, as you're as you're making the pot, you know, especially when you're using maybe it's subpar clays mm-hmm. or you're not, you know, not using, like, modern clays that come from, like, a factory or a processed or, like, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of a thing, that clay, as it, you know, you form it into the vessel, it dries, and you need to fire it, it can really easily break or explode right. during that it's very process. harsh harsh environment yeah. firing a pot and so what people figured out um what native people in the southeast figured out is that if they mixed in different material into that wet clay they what we would call tempered it with these mm-hmm. other materials like grasses or spanish moss or other organic material that they could help that pot get through the firing process without breaking or being destroyed. Yeah. There's sand tempered and then um, there's limestone tempered. um, Shell tempered. Shell tempered. And some really exciting research that's happening at UF, University of Florida now, um, about multi-generational grog tempered pottery. So cool. um, That there's grog inside of grog inside of grog what does grog mean yeah so grog is um like previously fired clay 
that has been pulverized, and that is added to the clay as a temper. And so what they're doing under, I don't know what the word is, fancy microscopes. Fancy, I think, is the word? Yeah, fancy. Um, fancy microscopes, they're able to get super and close and be able to, they're, what they're noticing is that that there's a temper in, in inside the temper, inside the temper. <laughs> temper inside of the temper inside <laughs> of the And so, temper. and there are all these different clays. Right, so yeah, these older pots are being recycled or reused and you know, broken up into probably smash parties, smash, smash parties yeah, <laughs> and mixed into um, new pots. And then that process repeats itself over and over again. So yeah. that, that like history and those, all those, you know, previous pot ancestors are like with that new pot going yeah. down through the, through the ages, through the generations, through the pots. generations. Um, and that yeah. kind of, kind of ties us into, um, this segment that I wanted to bring into the podcast, um, and I think I was talking about it on like our very first episode. It seems so long ago, but uh, material culture in the news. <laughs> um, and so, uh, talking just talking about material culture things that pop up on my Facebook feed or Becky's Instagram feed or Facebook <laughs> feed. Um, you know, like the uh, the the. the Payless charging twelve hundred dollars for cheap ass shoes. Did you see that Payless is now closing all its stores in? No. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, that's ramifications why. of a joke. Yeah. Wow. I bet we brought it down. Holy shit! I bet it was us. Yeah. I was. I bet it was us. So something that popped up in my uh, Instagram feed today marks the birthday of. Back to what you initially asked me. Today marks the birthday of Alchemist. Johann Frederick Buterecker. I don't know how to spell his last name. <laughs> I think that I'm sure that was Bacher a very but- good. Uh, Buterecker, born on this date in 1682, credited with discovering the formula for porcelain in Europe. Because at the time, porcelain was only known in China and Japan. Um, yeah, like the, people in Asia have been making ceramics for thousands and thousands and thousands of years longer than they've been making it. And that's because of access to material. That's not because of the inability of the people in, in say, Florida to make it. Um, and so, but porcelain was only available and it was uh, only mined in, in Asia. Um, and so true porcelain. Um, and so this guy figured out how to produce it in, from a European market. Now they mine it in, um, in England. Mm-hmm. It's being mined in, in um, but so that's material culture in the news. <laughs> Well, okay, but that raises, like, an interesting question. It's like, yeah. where do you find clay besides, like, the craft store? I mean, yeah. like, where do you get it from? Yeah, so, you you know. Um, what is it? Yeah, clay is mixed of all kinds of different materials, kaolin being uh, the clay material, um, primary clay material. Um, and so you find it associated with rivers, um, river beds. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go move further north into Georgia and the North Carolina and the South Carolina and those areas. And they have a much higher iron rich kale and content clay, um, that you can, uh, that potters today are still, um, digging out of the ground and using. And well, so, then, you know, looking back to like, you know, historic times, that makes sense that we see these like historic pottery traditions yeah. in, you know, the Carolinas, all this, you know, beautiful yeah. stoneware and going back to, you know, your example of, you know, in the news um, with England, we see these historic potteries mm-hmm. like Wedgwood and like mm-hmm. all these things that are in these places where there is that access to the raw material that you actually need. In Europe, like they had no idea 
how, you know, in China and Japan that they were creating this um, amazing, you know, like these amazing ceramics. Right. You know, these white like vessels with these beautiful like blue designs. And so it was this race to try to figure out how to like replicate it so that they could create it um, themselves. And yeah. Like, and weren't they trying to make fake? They made fake ones, right? Because they couldn't absolutely. figure out porcelain. So they, they were using dark terracotta clays and then they were brushing like a white slip on top of absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. Or they would put like, you know, a slight blue tint tint to it to, yeah. to make it look whiter but they just couldn't replicate it um until you know much much later right. so as an archaeologist it's interesting to look at that too how we see these european um you know potteries where they're trying to they're just kind of like grabbing these like you know motifs from um chinese and japanese um pottery and you know these um traditions from the other side of the world and kind of slapping it on um, pots and dishes and things that they were making for the European consumer market. Yeah. Uh, I would like to introduce another new segment that this is of my own invention, <laughs> and I did not uh, run this by Becky, but material culture in the cinema. I'm a huge movie buff, um, particular uh, horror movies, but I think it would be really exciting to talk about how there's so many different movies that are about – objects um and using objects i want to do one about MacGuffins. yes the MacGuffin, right yeah. alfred hitchcock's um yeah the object yeah that yeah. has nothing isn't important but drives everything right and drives the plot um but today i'm going to talk about this fantastic horror movie that came out in 2013 um it's terrible i'm just joking <laughs> but it came out in 2013 and it's called jug face have you heard what? of it Becky? no yeah. what is it do you have a picture of it um i'll pull up a picture um but it's basically the premise of the movie rural community that has a very bizarre religion um kind of centered around this monster that lives in a pit and so basically this potter he gets possessed uh, like once every full moon or whatever, I don't remember, by this entity that um, he creates a, a face jug. And if, and if you're not familiar with those. face jug traditions, yeah. um, historical face jug traditions, look it up. It's absolutely amazing. Um, historic face jugs going back nearly 200 years um salt glazed uh, but this 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 priest figure in the movie makes this face jug and whoever uh, who whoever is represented in the face jug um then has to be sacrificed to this oh monster in the pit this creature is nicholas cage in this movie no i feel like this is like a movie he would be in no, it does sound like a movie he'd be in um but he's not in this but then it it, it spirals downhill from there it's not a great movie i'm gonna um, have to watch that I can't it's I really good it. yeah i actually think i own it um but uh all the face jugs are made by a real artist by the name of uh jason mike michael um, and he designed, um, oh, wow. he's out of New York, uh, state and he designed all the face jugs for the movie and they're really good. Check out his website. But too. The, the faces on those jugs are meant to be like grotesque and kind of like crazy looking. They're not meant to be like a beautiful face. Yeah. Face. And these aren't, they're not grotesque. They're very realistic. And I think because it's supposed to be this portraiture, this, this specific individual, um, which I think is really cool. Um, and in the movie, you see the potter throwing him on the wheel and he's like in a trance. And of course, you never see um, the actor that plays like this priest <laughs> character making the pot. You you see either his face or um, and then you see his hands. Right. Like and that's the potter's Was it like hands. in Ghost and he had like. <laughs> <you know? laughs> no. Oh, ghost. 
Um, so um, that is Material Culture in the Cinema. Go watch that movie. Go watch that movie, yeah. But, you know, be prepared for a terrible movie. It's not that <laughs> terrible. Yeah. And so we are, are going to introduce another special guest for this podcast. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't. we're not going to be having special guests at, on every single um, edition, but um, we found ourselves in a time and place where we could actually interview a contemporary ceramic artist. Um, and we, Nigel's got connections. Uh, yeah, so, uh, all of yeah. them. I got all the connections. Um, and so we uh, we interviewed um, a couple weeks back. We interviewed a uh, a professor of ceramics at um, at Florida State University. Marty Fielding is the he's an adjunct professor at Florida State, um, and he finished his master's degree. <clears throat> excuse me, finished his master's degree. Um, in 2015 at here at University of Florida. So we had the chance to talk to Marty um, about his work and um, kind of um, his life as a maker and why he makes work and if he feels he falls into that continuum of ceramic artists in Florida for like the past 4,000 years. Right. Yeah, this deep tradition that we have here. Hi, Marty. Hi, Nigel. <laughs> um, well, welcome, uh, Marty. Marty Fielding. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. Um, we'll edit all this out. <laughs> uh, let's have our special guest introduce themselves. Go ahead, special guest, and go. Hi, materialists. <laughs> uh, my name is Marty Fielding. I am a potter. Uh, ceramic artists. I live in Tallahassee, Florida, and I've been working with clay for somewhere around 20 years. Uh, I make, I make functional work that is, um, influenced by modern architecture and abstract painting. We are here also with, <laughs> with Cece the dog. No, she's good. She's good. She's good. Oh, she just knocked over my beer though. Cece, that was a terrible place to put my beer. Cece, no. Bah. All no. this will be left in. What's <laughs> Thank you for being on the podcast and taking some time to sit down with us today. We appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Our podcast is really rooted in archaeology, and that's not the only thing we want to talk about. We want to kind of branch out and kind of and focus on material culture studies in general and contemporary ceramics fall into the material culture world. And a lot of these questions are questions we wish we could ask, um, like pre-contact Florida Native Americans that were making pottery. We, we want to ask these same questions oh. to them. So this particular episode is we're really talking about the use of ceramics going back all the way uh, in the prehistoric times to historic times and into um, what we are now in modern times. Um, you know, one of the things we wanted to ask you was, given the, the huge long line of uh, ceramic traditions in Florida, but also around the world, we're talking thousands of years, do you feel as a maker right now in 20, oh, it's 2019, do you feel that you are part of that lineage that has continued from all the way back in prehistoric times to now? I do. I, like you all, I was, um, I studied anthropology 
an undergraduate in, as an undergrad. And I, I always knew there was something about you, Marty. I always knew that you were very wise. Very wise. <laughs> and I, I feel like, I feel like because of that, um, I've always been interested in ceramics as, uh, or in, in terms of influence. Well, I should say historical ceramics, especially early on in my time working with clay was, was a big influence. And I think that a lot of that interest came from liking that there was a connection, um, a connection with the glazes that I was using to the past or connection to the, the tools that I was using to the past, um, to, to a tradition. And while prehistoric pottery from Florida probably wasn't part of, part of my particular influence, it was more coming from Japan and maybe Korea, some great pieces made way back in, I want to say maybe like 500, 600 BC from Persia. Um, but one of the, one of the things that, that was kind of a through line between a lot of these historical pieces that I was looking at was that they were maybe in a design sense, kind of ahead of their time. Like it could be something Mm -hmm. that could be invented today, Mm -hmm. but it was made in 1500 AD or say 700 BC, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, so things like Shino ware from Japan or Aribe ware from Japan. You're you're a teacher, right? Correct. Yes. At Florida State University. Yes. Um, I live in Gainesville, so Q rivalry jokes. <laughs> um, but as as a teacher, you're tr- you're trying to help the kids that are taking your class to understand this world of handmade objects in a different light, right? Try to, to, to see value in making things with their hands. Um, are you making an attempt to influence how these kids are looking at the handmade object or the material object in a different light? Definitely. And I guess I, f- I feel like no matter what the teaching venue is, like I've taught ceramics classes for a long time in a lot of different places. And I feel like, especially people who are, who are coming to it for the first time, they may not take another class or they, and, and then some people may get hooked and, and, you know, maybe it becomes their career. But I think for the most part, that's not going to be the case. And, but the thing, and I remember this from when I first started taking classes myself, like the first thing that you sort of take away from it is one that it's, that is difficult. And because you realize that it's difficult, you have this appreciation for, for what it takes, or you have a, you have a different kind of insight into what it takes to, to make something and make it well. And, um, I think that's interesting though, because I mean, so I feel outnumbered because I'm the only person that's not a potter, (laughs) but, um, as an archeologist looking at like an ancient pot that like a native person made, um, you know, I can appreciate it. I can appreciate like its beauty, but I don't know that that difficulty, I don't have any kind of reference for what goes into all those stages from collecting the clay to preparing it to everything. But, um, I guess do you think that knowing that like practice and like, you know, actually having being a maker and having that perspective, do you think it changes the way that you look at objects like that? Yeah, definitely. And I feel like with 
with craft in general, like whether it's whether it's woodworking or whether it's blacksmithing, and 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 you know into more media that are, you know, I mean, I guess we could talk about craft, we could talk about art, but but I think maybe putting it all together, I think being able to recognize sort of a level of skill that goes into making something like if it's a really nicely built table or, um, um, some kind of, a uh, forged piece of steel or, or iron that, you know, it's, um, or whether it's a painting, I, f- I feel like, you know, having experience making and, and being very, being very, um, kind of tied to a sense of craftsmanship and, you know, trying to, trying to, to do it as well as I can. Um, it definitely makes me appreciate seeing that in, in other places or in other, in other art forms. Could you talk a little bit more about why the history of Asian ceramics was particularly appealing to you and your art practice? I had a, I had a teacher who was Japanese and while I don't really feel like he necessarily kind of pushed that aesthetic. I think, well, I, I, I guess I should say about him, I feel like he taught ceramics as a metaphor for life in general. Um, and so, and I think at the same time, I was also interested in um, kind of Eastern philosophy, Buddhism, I feel like f- maybe from this interest in Eastern philosophy, I've, I've often sort of looked to authority figures as people who are teaching by not necessarily saying directly what they are meaning, but there's like some meaning to be gleaned from something that they're saying. Right. That's like subtext. Right. And so I got, I got that feeling from him. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's it's a good question. Like, why why was it? You know, I think it's interesting to think about it now because there is much more of a uh, concern about cultural appropriation, and so right. I think. Um, but I, I don't feel like I would at this point in time want to just borrow something from another culture. Right. You're not Japanese call it for the record. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think, I mean, I do think one thing with globalism and being in the United States, whereas there's this melting pot, I feel like, you know, we do have this sense of, um, if it's available, we can mix it in, in a way. Um, but I, but I think that, um, that's definitely being much more questioned much more now, or I'm aware of it being questioned now more than, than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Thank you so much, Marty, yeah, for you. being on the materialists. Absolutely. My pleasure. Um, I will link to all of Marty's, uh, social media. Um, so those of you that are interested in Those seeing more, buy his work, check it out. <laughs> yeah. Buy his buy work, all buy all of it. <laughs> um, uh, thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So we are really lucky to have our second guest on the podcast. Um, So due to scheduling, um, Becky is on a computer screen next to me. She's not in the room with me. 
She's a cyborg um, okay. from a cyborg from like 1982 on a flat computer screen. Um, like Max Hedrum. Like, yeah. Um, and so we are interviewing our second artist. Hello. Second artist, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Mariana and Baccaro. And you're bona fides, too. I'm Mariana Baccaro. I am a ceramic artist, and I work currently as a, a teacher um, at a community studio on the University of Florida campus. And you are a recent graduate from the University of Florida Ceramics Program yeah, as well. not so recent anymore. It's been three years. Has it really? Yeah, time flies. We're old people. I know. So welcome, Mariana, Thanks. to the Materialist Podcast. Thank you. Um, we are excited to have another maker, um, being that, you know, it's often, I don't know, maybe it is considered, maybe it is thought of, but we think of going back thousands and thousands of years in the prehistoric pottery, um, but what we really focus on is the object, and we focus less on the people that actually made them. Um, and so we can't talk to those people or have some kind of association with them beyond the craft. So we are here talking to a modern-day maker, Yeah, my very good friend, Mariana. So Becky, again, like I had mentioned, Becky is speaking from the, uh, the nether region of the interwebs. Um, and so um, I'm going to move the microphone closer to the computer. So Nigel, like, forwarded me, um, you know, part of your, your thesis. Yeah. Um, and so it was like it's like reading and something from anthropology or, like, archaeology. So it was really cool to see all the, the connections, like, in your work to yeah. things that we talk about all the time. So we're like, oh, my God, you know, we have to have Mariana on, like, for every podcast. <laughs> I agree. Absolutely. I would love it. I, uh, yeah, the research I did for the thesis was like some of my, the, the best things that I did, like my favorite work was reading um, some of the research pieces that I did on material culture. And I took a class in grad school. We had to take an outside class. Um, and my class was on material culture. And it was in the anthropology department. And it was super fascinating because I am a maker. Like I make these things and to read about people's ideas um, about things and how they interact and how they're important in society. Like that was eye opening. Taking this class on material culture and doing these readings about um, objects and how, and, and their importance in creating identity um, and the, the way they interact like in social rituals um, with people and how important objects are like that it really gave me the sense that what what I was making was important right and it's serving a purpose it's doing something out in the world. The underlying theme really for our entire podcast plan here is to basically discuss this idea, do ob objects have agency? Yeah. Um, do, can they sort of dictate the world around them? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my objects in particular, like one of my strongest experiences as a maker was um, the first time I sold 
something, right? So I, the, I got into this show in Chicago and this gallery in Chicago, and I sent my cups. It was two sets of cups. I sent them out there, all my, my little cups, all the way to Chicago where it was cold by themselves. And, um, and they were in this show, and some people came into the gallery and saw the cups and put down their money to buy them. Right. And that I got their check, you know, their personal check with their names on it It was sent to me. And that experience, like that connection with these people that I had never met, like they saw my cups and something about those objects moved them. They connected in some way with those objects. I wasn't present. They didn't know me. They had nothing to do with me. They connected with the objects to the point where they were willing to part with you know, their money to buy them. And that, I mean, that connection astounded me. Like that feeling of connection, that sense of like this little bit of me went out there into the world and in it and in induced and enticed these people to buy it, <laughs> you know? And, I, and if that's not agency, I don't know what is. And, and it is a language, like absolutely it is a language. And in pottery specifically, because we use these objects every day to eat, to drink, in ritual, right? So it is, it's a language that's cut across like millennia, right? From thousands of years ago, we, we use the same kinds of objects to eat and drink out of and so I don't know for me like that it's a crazy form of time travel well and you know pottery is such a durable medium right, right. so it's like last for you it's know archival yeah forever you know so you think about like who has it now I'm sure like thinking where it ends up like do they pass you know or people like they're gonna pass it on to someone do they keep it forever but then also, us being archaeologists, the pots that we find are ones that people threw out or tossed away, like, into the landfill eventually. So do you, like, what about, like, the deep time, like, journey of your pottery? What do you think an archaeologist would think of my one of your pieces, like, in the archaeological site of I, the future? Yeah, I don't know. I <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I do, I think about that all the time. I thought about that a lot when I was in school making these really terrible, terrible pots. Um, and we used to chuck them into the pond out behind the studio um, just as a way of, you know, honoring their existence, but also not ever looking at them again. And I would, <laughs> I would think about, you know, in a thousand years when, you know, the apes have taken over the world and, you know, they have their museum of human artifacts and some pot of mine is in there and they'll they'll wonder what it was used for and who made it and what their story was and um but i think that even then they will still be eating and drinking out of pots right like they will see a bowl and they will like oh well this bowl was probably used to hold some kind of food some kind of liquid maybe in a ritual maybe not um, but it's not like they'll look at it and say, oh, we have no idea what this was used for. Like they, they, they'll know, like, you know, we can speak to each other through these material objects across thousands and thousands of years. And that, that's just amazing. So, I mean, even though I would like them to see my best pots, even if they see my really crappy early pots, I'm, per <laughs> I'm totally fine with that. I think that would still tell them something about me. Uh, and that fascinates me, too, is how that translates through time. Like, I look at these pots that are thousands and thousands of years old and the marks that they've made on these pots, and they're the same marks that we're making now and the same marks that we find attractive now. 
And it's really fascinating to me how that, like, there is this, we always have this idea that beauty is subjective, but it's really not. I really think, like, there is this idea of things that are beautiful across time, across cultures, and and that that's something that survives. And I imagine in 10,000 years it will still exist in some form or other that's recognizable. And I love that. I feel like that sense of durability, I don't know, that gives, that gives, me hope that there's some meaning to what I'm doing and that it's not just going to be lost. You know, as an archaeologist, um, it is one thing that I've often considered is the position of the maker and that that idea that um, it would be so cool to bring a prehistoric potter just I mean, he would hate it, maybe. He or she <laughs> um, would hate it, but just come here for a second to, so they could maybe understand that idea of that the marks that they're making are 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 the same kind of marks that we're making, you know. Yeah. And I I guess I guess what we have often sought after is this idea of what's behind those marks. That that idea of where what is the motivation behind those marks. And so that kind of leads me into um the question that Becky was going to ask that she emailed me um about um Mariana's specific mark making on her work. So like in your thesis, you talk about the ways that, um, you know, the objects that you're creating, they hold these memories. And I found that like really fascinating um, when you were talking about that. So in what ways do you think that your pieces hold memories? Like, do you think it's in like the physicality of how you're making the vessel? Is it in the design um, and like the decoration or, you know, something else kind of more ephemeral? Yeah, no, I think, I think there's multiple levels in which they hold memory. I mean, there is like the literal level in which like I've imprinted, you know, handwritten stories on the surface of my pots. So literally you can read stories um, on the pots and, and their memories of my family um, and, and I think this is the wonderful thing about art, right, is that it works on multiple levels, right? There is the surface level, but then there's also the deeper level in that um, the, the pots themselves I based on these archetypal, um, is that a word, archetypal, archetypal yeah. <laughs> vessel, vessel forms, right? So these vessel forms, Greek vessel forms and Roman vessel forms and Native American vessel forms that are... Uh, that are really recognizable. I think any person off the street looking at the silhouette of this form would be like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's a pot. Um, that's a, a pot that you would see in a museum, right? And so using those kinds of forms, um, that's, a, that's a language, right? That's a form of language to transmit information to someone that, right, we're talking about um, vessels. So, so on that level also, it's transmitting meaning and information. But then also on the level of where I, I used my hands to form these objects. And so there's the marks of the maker. And so there's that kind of memory too. So I think it works on, on many, many levels. I think that's something that's unique to clay, that it can record yeah. that kind of information. So do you think it's possible for archaeologists to get to any of those levels of meaning that you had in your brain when you were making that pot? Is there any hope for us like to be able to figure these things out and kind of get 
into the like thought process of those makers from thousands of years ago? Yeah, absolutely. I don't see why not. I mean, we 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 all share the same the same biology. Um, we we have this language in the objects that we made and that we used, right? We all have you know lips and mouths, and so we needed these objects that would hold liquid and that would be able to funnel liquid into our mouths. But we can make intelligent guesses about what these objects were used for, why they were important. We we look at context, right? Uh, and so we can make inferences based on what we value now today, right? Like we still have ritual pot. It's fair to extrapolate that previous people also used those objects in that in a similar way, right? Like they had similar needs to what we had. They used their vessels in a similar way that we used our vessels. I think that's fair. No, yeah, I think it's absolutely fair, and and I think that's that that kind of perspective is something that is uh, you know lacking <laughs> in uh, i mean it, maybe it isn't maybe it isn't lacking in archaeology but it's sometimes the focus uh, is on the object itself and um bringing the anthropology back into archaeology is something that you don't I think want to make really too many assumptions it's a science and i i get that that you don't want to i mean in art we're telling stories right yeah. so we can make assumptions and in science you want to be careful about the assumptions that right. you're making but i also think that um you know there are some um, extrapolations that are more likely than others, and you can say it that way. You can say it's likely people use this for this reason, yeah. you know. And I think it's fair to say we use these objects for these reasons. Maybe these ancient people used these objects for similar yeah. reasons. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's also important to point out, though, that our perspective on the world is completely alien Very to theirs, different. and yeah. so. Um, there is, of course, the human perspective, um, and I think yeah. that's completely legitimate. But we come from extremely um, European-centric oh, perspective, and yeah. and how we've created our society, and how we've uh, every every aspect. So that's one thing that I think is missing. But at the heart of it all, though, really is the human interaction with the object itself. And I think you're absolutely right that we can. Um, I think it's safe to make. Some kind of extrapolation. Yeah, yeah. We tell we tell stories, right? Yeah, it, we're we're telling ourselves a story of how people lived and used objects and what the objects meant to them. Right. And understanding the limitations of our context, you know, right, of our worldview, um, doesn't mean that we can't still attempt to understand another context and other worldview. I always think of that. Um, when you mentioned, like, if you could interview an ancient potter and bring him in here and ask him, you know, what did you mean by those making those marks? And I could just imagine he or she saying, well, there was a seashell and it was pretty and I stuck it in the clay <laughs> and it yes. and it looked great. Right. And it's not I don't think it's, it needs to be any more complicated than that. And I, I think that's a totally legit. I think in this modern time, like I haven't gone to grad school, uh, you know, in ceramics and having to explain every mark that I ever made on any ceramic pot to have some deep meaning behind it. Right. I think it could be just as simple as, you know, I found this tool in my kitchen and it made a really cool mark. And so I used it, you know, and I think an ancient potter is probably he found some object in his 
environment and he liked the look of it and he made that mark and the other people around him said that looks really great we like that make more of that and i just don't think it's any more complicated than that it doesn't need to be more complicated than that we do tend to overcomplicate things now in this like modern western perspective i think we want things to be deeper than they really are well that was excellent <laughs> thank you um well, that's fantastic. I think that's a safe place to wrap it up. Okay. Um, thanks, Mariana, for being on The Materialists. Welcome. Thanks, Mariana. Thank you. My pleasure. And scene. That was a wonderful um, episode that we just recorded. Episode uh, three. Episode three in the book. I didn't even break any ceramics during I know. our <laughs> episode. Knock on wood. I mean, we still have like a couple seconds left, but no ceramics were broken. No ceramics um, were harmed. In the yeah, of I this did podcast. trip and uh, almost knocked. My oh my can god! Of beer. I thought, yeah, that would have been bad. I'd like to thank Florida Public Archaeology Network. Um, we'd like to thank uh, Have Gun Will Travel for our intro Yay. music. Um, as always, fantastic. Um, like us and uh, share. And then we'll and comment. Yeah. Leave us comments. If you think we're full of comments. shit, tell us. Um, <laughs> but I would rather you not. Yeah, keep that to yourself. No, I'd rather you just say that we're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just say, you are so awesome. You guys are doing such good things. Yeah. Um, but thank you, listeners, for listening to this other, uh, the next episode. Come at us um, uh, again, and we'll, we'll bring you... Um, n another exploration of material culture in episode cuatro. Yeah. Dive into the world of material culture. Right. All right. Bye. Bye. Now, Dwight is going to search his place again. And if he does not find a jug face, well, then we wait. We wait until the pit guides his hand to make another. What if the face I see ain't the right one? Never been wrong before, have you? Flip the script. Yeah, we want to fl flip the script. Flip the script. Flip the script.